Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Abby Shackner. I mean, it was like there was fucking and fucking and fuck you fucking fucking. So like, uh, <laughs> that and more. But before that, I want to talk about one of our new sponsors, and this is my new favorite online store. I have had a fabulous personal experience with Thrive Market. If you spend a lot of time going to the grocery, you can forget about that. Thrive Market, they sell all the top organic and healthy products at 25 to 50% off shipped straight to your door. Just do a price comparison to Whole Foods or, or whatever grocery store you like to shop at. You can easily find price comparisons on their site next to each product. It shows the retail price versus the Thrive Market price. And the savings, it's striking. They cut out the middleman and they work directly with the brand, so they pass all the savings on to their members. I couldn't get over how quickly the package came, how fantastic their own brands are, their Thrive Market brands of stuff that they make are. It's just top notch. I got myself some Lara bars, some apple cider vinegar, some nuts and seeds. I got myself a lot of bathroom supplies. I thought to myself, oh, but they probably don't have the super high quality grain-free cat food, but they do. The site is super helpful and easy to use, too. You know how, well, myself, I'm often checking to see if the ingredients of something are really vegan. Well, the site does it for you. With a click of a button, you can just check for everything in the catalog that's vegan. So you get $60 of free organic grocery credits plus free shipping and a 30-day trial. Now, keep in mind, the prices are already 25 to 50% below retail because they cut out the middleman. Now they're offering this additional $60 of free groceries. So go to thrivemarket.com slash risk, thrivemarket.com slash risk. You're going to be amazed at scrolling through the site, seeing all the stuff you can get and how convenient it is, and how high quality it is. And it's just such a treat when the box arrives. So one last time, that's $60 of free organic grocery credits plus free shipping and that 30-day trial when you go to thrivemarket.com slash 
risk. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and this is indian wells behind me now we are calling this week's episode out of the blue three stories one very funny one very sad And one very kinky. (laughs) Three stories where the storytellers found themselves in situations they just had not anticipated very shortly prior that they'd ever end up in. In a little bit, we are going to hear from Susan Trout. She shared her absolutely gorgeous story the last time we were in New Orleans. But before that, we're going to hear from the hilarious Abby Shackner. She is a comedian, writer, actor based in Los Angeles. If you don't already know, we do the Risk Live show at the Bootleg Theater in L.A. once a month. So this was recorded there. Here's Abby Shackner now with the story we call The Kicker. So I guess I need to tell you that I'm a walker. I walk, and I kind of deem myself a walker, and I have a friend that would call me a walker. And a walker is different than someone who just walks, because as a walker, I kind of notice other walkers. I can be competitive with other walkers. I used to live in Silver Lake, and like one time there there used to be a guy that was a walker. He's passed away now, but he was a walker. And one time on his birthday, they'd put like balloons and signs, like every like mile markers for the walker. But I'm a walker. Really, right now, actually, I push a stroller with my French bulldog. So I'm just kind of a weirdo who pushes a stroller with a French bulldog. But when the dog dies, I'm going to be a walker again, which is good, because I think there's a little bit of compulsiveness being a walker. So one day I'm walking, and I'm on... Um, I don't need to see you clearly. One day, one day, one day I'm walking, and I'm in Silver Lake, Los Feliz, and I'm walking on Commonwealth or Talmadge, a very quiet street east of Hillhurst. And also as a walker, I have a very good pace. I'm not a speed walker, but I have a pace that's faster than most people who just walk. So I'm, I'm, I'm walking, and a car pulls up into the stop sign in front of me, and, but he's in my path. And he's about to take a right turn without stopping, and I kick his car. <laughs> and I like to just say I kind of extended my leg to step, but I kicked his car. Now. I think another thing you should know besides the fact that I'm a walker is that I am my father's daughter. And my father was a very impulsive man. And I guess you could call him a character or some people would call him maybe a sociopath. Uh, 
but he was impulsive, but he also was very good at getting out of things. And I, and I have the impulsive problem. I don't know if I'm good at, it's difficult being a female having characteristics like my dad because it doesn't display it was different for him he was a doctor and he could behave badly and seem to get out of it and i'm i'm a woman and i also have a conscience so i also have guilt feelings that he didn't seem to have like when i was growing up and i'd visit my dad my parents were divorced um I remember one time he's like, he saw some people on a, a water tower by a piece of property he owned. He was a doctor and a slumlord. So he saw these people, he's like, if I had my gun, I'd shoot him. And then it, it stopped signs. He's like, if someone wasn't driving the way he'd like to, he's like, if I had my other car, I'd bash him. And, and, and because my dad was a bit of a character, he had another friend who was a character and they loved to tell stories. And one of the stories I heard growing up was that I'm from Toledo, and one time my father passed his friend, his best friend Richie, on this street called Bancroft, a little um, interway. It's, people move on Bancroft Street. It's a thoroughfare, I guess you'd call it. And he passed his friend Richie, and he decided to reverse his car on Bancroft to say hello or to see Richie or to do whatever he needed to do. And he hits a car that's going the right way. <laughs> and my dad gets out of the car and the guy's like, what? doesn't know what the hell happened. And my dad's like, you hit my car. <laughs> and, and the guy's sort of confused and my dad turned to his friend Richie and he said, you sir, you're the witness. And Richie said, I saw the whole thing. <laughs> And then they went to court and my dad got out of it. And, and my dad also tried to kill my mother and he got out of that too because he paid the hitman who was an undercover cop after the fact and he got off. Which I'm a very lucky kid because I got to hang out with my dad but there's some cracks and confusion. So, so my foot snaps and hits the car. The guy goes through he's, his momentum and he stops at the in, in the middle of the intersection and he flings open the doors. He's like, you, you, you kicked my car! And I continued walking. He said, bitch, you kicked my car. I said, yeah, well, you didn't stop at the stop sign. And the reason why, I, I was trying to formulating the reason why it was very important. I decided it was very important uh, that he needed to know he, he needed to stop at stop signs because it was late October. Now, I'm not sure if it was October 31st. It could have been the 30th or the 27th, I'm not sure. But I decided it was Halloween and there's gonna be kids around and you gotta stop at stop. And there used to be, a, a, there was an apartment like right across the way from where he went through. And I remember one year seeing a party, a daytime party happening with kids at this thing and so I decided that Halloween was the reason why he needed his car kicked and he's and he's pissed and he's walking around his car to look at you know whatever happened and I and I continue walking and he's like you bitch get over here you kick my car I'm like look it if you want to discuss it I am walking to the coffee bean if you want to meet to that parking lot now that's like five blocks away but I'm like if you want to meet there because I'm also scared shitless there there are many people around I don't know what time it is but I'm sort of scared that this guy you know I'm in the no one's passing so I continue my stride but I feel like my knees eject some type of vinegar solution. I don't know if you ever did vinegar and bones, chicken bones in your classroom in, in elementary school, but it turns your bones to rubber. Something like kind of squirted out of my knees, but I'm trying to keep up the pace, so I'm getting wiggly, like knowing that probably shouldn't have kicked his car. So, but I'm trying to keep up my pace. And I started thinking about this incident uh, that I had with my father and my brother growing up. 
after the incident with my mother and my father, when my dad got out, he disappeared for a little bit, a very short time, but he wasn't in jail. We just weren't allowed to see him. And after, because <laughs> he got out of it. But after we started seeing him, I ran into him at a birthday party. I was eating peanut butter and crackers and trying to whistle at a birthday party, and my dad pulled up. And that's how I started seeing my dad. So um, he bought my brother and I a BB gun. And he lived not too far from where I lived with my mother and my stepfather. My brother and I would practice on cans, you know, below his uh, apartment. One day, my brother shoots a can, and it, uh, the BB ricochets off and hits an old woman who's walking in the alley behind the garage. And she's not happy. <laughs> and conveniently, there was a police station located on the other side of the alley. Now, my brother's scared. He's a little bit more like my mother. So, um, so he like runs inside to my dad's place. And before I know it, the woman is back with two cops and um, they want to speak to my father. So I go up and I get my dad and my dad comes downstairs to the garage. The policemen are standing around and I think my brother's still gone and I'm standing, uh, the old woman's there. and. And my father asked, in a different way that I've ever heard him, you know, what seems to be the problem. And the woman's like, you know, I bruise, it's bruising, you know, pain, problem, BB gun. So my dad takes the BB gun and he cocks it and he pulls it awkwardly like back because he, he's going he's gonna to shoot himself. My dad takes the BB gun, he pulls it back, puts his hand about an inch in front of the BB gun and everybody's like standing with their arms crossed, like what the hell is this guy doing? And he shoots himself in the hand. And then he starts describing in front of the officers and the old woman what is happening to his hand after the BB hits it. He talks about the blood forming, how it's, when you touch your hand, it turns white in the middle and then all the blood. So he's describing what's happening and they're looking at him like, what the? But the, the cops are like, okay. And the woman's like, what the hell? So, he shoots himself, they leave. My dad tries to get me upstairs and I must be like seven, eight years old. He shoots me upstairs and he follows up very quickly and he shuts the door and he's like, no! And he swore and I never, despite all the incidences with my mother, I never heard him swear, he swore. And he talked about, and he, and he also mentioned how a ricochet can be worse than a direct hit. Uh, <laughs> never seen him in action you know I'd heard these stories about him like getting out of, and that's like I gave you an example earlier about like a couple of the stories that like had him get out of it so I'm thinking about this as I'm walking and I start to hear this car come back like the car I hear it it's coming and I'm going I want to make it to the coffee I'm still far away from the car I'm not even on Ambrose to take a left the car makes a u-turn I think he's gonna pin me in but then he pulls up next to me and he gets out of the car. Oh, you know what I didn't describe? This guy was sort of scary. You know, this guy, <laughs> the music that was blaring from his car was like, there was fucking and fucking and fuck you fucking fucking. So like, uh, he's, <laughs> and he pulls up next to me and he gets out. He's like, bitch, clean my car. You know, like, you better not have done in my car. And as he pulls up next to me, I mean, on his car is the perfect shoe print. I mean, like, it is like every piece of my shoe. It's like a flat, and actually it was sideways because I kicked it like that. I didn't just step into it. I mean, I like went like that when he was up at that stop sign. 
So I see, like, I mean, you practically read out the word Nike in the center of it. So he's like, clean my car, bitch. And I'm like, no. He said, bitch, clean my car. You know, you better not be dented. I said, well, let's do it together. <laughs> and the guy's like, okay. So I stepped off of the curb into the street and I wiped a little of my shoe print and then he wiped a little of my shoe print. And then I wiped a little of my shoe print <laughs> and he wiped a little. And I'm like, I don't see any scratches or anything yet, no dent. I wipe a little, he wipes a little. I wipe a little. Pretty soon now we're at the heel. I wipe a little, he wipes a little. And like we're both kind of, I'm relieved. And I think maybe he's relieved and confused. And uh, he said, don't kick cars. <laughs> and I said, don't not stop at stop signs. <laughs> and I continued with my pace. I, he, he drove away and I kind of was a kind of gallop, a little bit awkwardly, but like <laughs> galloping, like it, it, it finally hit me. And I was thanking my father the entire way. I think that's the end. Thank you. Did you just kick my car? Don't kick my car, I'll hit you again. You know, like if I had a car, I felt love for the car and somebody kicked my car. I'd be as upset as if they kicked my girlfriend. Bitch, you kicked my fucking fucking car. Shut up and quit kicking my car. Bitch, you kicked my fucking fucking car. You kicked my car. Don't 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 kick 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 cars. Bitch, you kicked my fucking fucking car. On the morning of September 13th, 2014, I woke up to the sound of my phone vibrating on the nightstand next to my bed. It was five in the morning and it was pitch black, so it took me a couple of seconds to grope around and swipe my finger across the screen. When I managed to get the thing to my ear, I heard my mother's voice on the other end of the line and immediately I knew that something was very badly wrong. She's not a morning person. When I asked her what was going on, all she would say was, Susie, you know what happened. I was getting nervous now, so I pressed her and I told her I didn't. She would have to tell me. And she said in this very slow, quiet voice, Susie, David killed himself. David is my big brother. He's 13 years older than me, but the age difference didn't really matter much to us. We were best friends, more or less from the beginning. As a little kid, I would fly to visit him at his house and he would let me sleep in bed with him, even when he had a girlfriend, and even though I kicked. 
<laughs> he got me my very first iPod for my birthday, the first one I had ever seen, and he had it inscribed on the back. It said, I love you, little Sue, happy sweet 16, David. He called me little Sue and Susie and Susie Q and Susan Rooney, never Susan. He was a photographer and an elementary school art teacher, and he was also bipolar. The last year of my brother's life, he started to unravel, and that was hard because I was very, very far away. After college, I had moved out to Hawaii to be with a boyfriend who later became my husband, Jimmy. And not knowing what to do with my art history degree, there's not a lot to do with an art history degree. I had the brilliant idea of going to medical school. So what that meant was going back to community college and doing all of the math and science that I hadn't done in the first place. So, well, once a week my brother would call me and he would tell me all of this craziness that was unfolding in his life. He was having all these conflicts with the principal at his job. He was dating a 19-year-old aspiring tattoo artist who seemed to be doing all of her training on him. <laughs> So he would call me and he would tell me all of this and I would sort of grit my teeth and I would say like, David, get your shit together. And I would just wait for him to orbit back around to earth because he always had before. Sure enough, around August, he did seem to be approaching reality again. He got his meds straightened out and started going to AA, which was great and broke up with the 19 year old. But unfortunately, there was nothing to be done about the tattoos. Uh, the last conversation I had had with him about two weeks before this phone call from my mom was about Pinterest. He had just discovered it and he was very excited because there were so many arts and crafts for his students. And he was going to send me a list of all of his ideas for the coming school year. So when my mom on the phone told me that he had killed himself, I just couldn't make heads or tails of it because he was supposed to be okay, and now he wasn't going to be anything ever again. I got out of bed, and I hung up the phone, and I just knelt down on the scratchy carpet of our bedroom, and I started to cry. And Jimmy was awake by now, and he came around, and he helped me make it to the shower, and he helped me get in, and he sat down on the toilet next to me, and he just listened to me sob. In the next couple of days, my parents and my other brother came out to Hawaii so we could all be together and to make sure that I kept going to school. Because in our family, you're not allowed to quit, especially not anymore. I remember seeing my dad's face when we went to pick him up from the airport, and my dad is 70 years old, but he's a guy who's never looked his age. I mean, the man kayak surfs in the Pacific every week with his doctor buddies. But now I could see every line in his face like they were carved into marble. He just looked haunted and I couldn't get his face out of my head. My parents stayed for about a week and they went home and I did keep going to school which was good because I think it saved me. It helped me to just look at what I was feeling just out of the corner of my eye so that it wouldn't swallow me whole. I remember that first week I was lying in bed with Jimmy and I was just crying these big racking sobs, the kind that make your abs hurt. And I wanted to say something, just wanted to put it into words. And all I could say, I looked over and I said, Jimmy, I'm just, I'm just so sad. And he looked at me and very sweetly, he ran one finger down my cheek and he said, 
is it anything in particular? <laughs> Which was the first moment that I realized I could still laugh. A couple of months later, I started to get this thought in my mind that what I wanted to do was to have a baby. Part of this was because I still had a year before I would go to medical school if, in fact, I got in. And the other part of it was that, to me, the best way to push back against death seemed to be with more life. Jimmy and I started to try and got it on the first try. Um, and we were both very excited, and so were my parents. And the pregnancy moved along. At 10 weeks, we went in for the Doppler scan, where you hear the heartbeat for the first time. And it was so fast. It was like a rabbit or a hummingbird. I had no idea it would be that way. It was just surreal. And around Christmas time, I was about 14 weeks pregnant, and I decided to go home to California. Jimmy and I are from the same small town. His mom lives there, my parents live there. It's very convenient. <laughs> Unfortunately, Jimmy couldn't join me, so I went home by myself, and while I was there, I decided that I wanted to get an ultrasound. I couldn't get one in Hawaii because our military insurance didn't cover any scans until the 20th week. And I was only at 14, but I thought it would be kind of fun if I knew the gender before Jimmy did. You know, get a little head start. So I made the appointment, and I invited my mom and my mother-in-law to come in with me for the scan. And we went downtown, and you know, we're in the room, and I'm, I've got my shirt pulled up, and the tech squirts that horrible cold jelly on your stomach. And she runs the wand over my stomach, and this image flickers up on the screen. And my mom, standing at the foot of the bed, immediately shrieks, Oh my God, are there two of them in there? Which was a shock to everybody, because as far as we knew, there had only been one baby. But I didn't say much of anything because I was looking at the screen too and it just didn't look right. It didn't look like those ultrasound pictures that everybody likes to put on Facebook. It was strange. There were two things in there, but they were like little mice. They were so small and kind of crunched up and just floating there in this gray, staticky ocean. Everybody in that room got pretty quiet, and the tech wouldn't say anything else, but she did tell me to get dressed, and she told us to go down the hall and wait in a conference room, which we did, and we were very surprised about 10 minutes later when my dad walked into the room. My dad is a doctor in that same small town, and I guess his colleague, the guy who ran this clinic, had decided that he would be the best person to deliver what turned out to be the bad news. My dad sat down, and with that same horrible, haunted, miserable look in his face, he said, Susie, I'm so sorry. You had twins, but they're both dead. Neither of us said much of anything. None of us did. We just sort of made our way back out to the car, and I walked to one side, and I got on the phone, and I called Jimmy in Hawaii. And telling him that was the absolute worst sentence I've ever had to say to anybody. And immediately I heard him just start to sob on the other end of the phone, these big racking sobs, much like the ones he's probably crying now in the audience. Um, and I could hear him sitting there with all of his colleagues coming up around him to touch his shoulder and, and asking him if everything was okay. And between sobs, he gets out to me that he'll be right there, that he's getting on the next plane. And sure enough, he was. He showed up 
a day later, ready to come in with me for the DNC, which is the procedure that you have to get when your body doesn't miscarry on its own. So here we found ourselves in a hospital room with me in the bed and this warm blanket over my legs and Jimmy sitting on the chair next to me, looking pale and miserable and empty and alone. And I looked at him and all I wanted in that moment was to just make him laugh. So I said, Jimmy, do you want me to tell you a story? And he said, yeah, I do. So I said, okay, well, here's the thing. These babies, they're, they're not actually our babies. They're demon babies. I think, I think they were placed inside me by some malevolent fairy, and this is a huge bummer for us, but man, it's really gonna be a problem for the guy performing this procedure, because when he hooks up that vacuum and tries to suck them out, their eyes are gonna glow red, and these fangs are gonna snick down from their tiny misshapen gums, and they're just gonna leap at his throat, and they're gonna tear it out. It's gonna be fucking carnage in that operating room. Like, people will be screaming and running. The babies are gonna, like, scamper up into the vent system of the hospital, and they're going to like make their way into the countryside where they're going to wreak havoc for decades to come. And you and I are going to go down in history as like the people who unleashed our demon spawn upon the world. So by the time I finish this story, Jimmy and I are both laughing and the entire hospital staff has decided that we're insane. But neither of us cared because at least we knew that if we could keep laughing, we could keep moving forward which we did. We went back to Hawaii and we had another miscarriage, this one at five weeks. But I also got into medical school and Jimmy got into college too and we moved to New Orleans. The first semester of medical school isn't easy for anybody. It's very stressful, you may not have heard. <laughs> but for me, the thing that made it harder than anything was the fact that David my brother didn't know where I was anymore. And that wasn't a thought that made a lot of sense, but it's kind of the thing about moving forward. Some people just stay in the past, getting farther and farther away. About halfway through the year, a classmate of mine committed suicide. And that was brutal for everybody. I wasn't very close to her, but I remember walking around in the halls and seeing the faces of her friends and, and seeing my face reflected in theirs. And I couldn't stop thinking about her parents and how far away they were from their baby when she needed them most. And I knew exactly how that felt. They had a memorial for her in Audubon Park under this big, beautiful oak tree called the Tree of Life. We went out there at dusk, almost the whole school, and we all lit candles. And this girl's friends and family, they stood up and they said beautiful things and they played music and we just thought about this person who had been in the world before and wasn't anymore. As we were filing out of the clearing, this enormous wind came up and it blew out every single candle in that clearing as we were filing out. And next to me, my classmate reached out and slid her arm into mine. And we kept moving forward, like you do. And if I've learned one thing, it is that at our best, 
The thing that we can hope to be for one another is a warm hand in the darkness when all the lights go out. risk this is thea gilmore behind me now there are so many hundreds of wonderful covers of bob dylan songs but i think this is one of the sweeter ones to come out in recent years we just heard from susan trout she shared her story when risk was last in new orleans before that we heard a little interstitial by our episode editor jeff barr And now I'd like to remind you that the Risk book is coming together. (laughs) There's so very much going on. I I am currently recording these hosting segments for this episode in a hotel room in San Francisco because we're doing San Francisco Sketchfest this weekend. I I have a bunch of pillows around the microphone to maybe make it sound a little better. So much going on, but the Risk book is coming together beautifully. It will be out officially in July, but we need pre-orders. We need people to go to theriskbook.com and pre-order a copy for yourself, copies for your friends and family as gifts. This is going to be such a spectacular book. Some of the very best stories that have ever been featured on the show and a lot of new stories you've never heard on the show, plus behind-the-scenes interviews. The stories take on a new life when you read them on the page, when they're kind of edited more to be read. They're fascinating. There's so many new details and nuances I'm noticing in some of these stories. So, yeah, you're going to love the book, but we need lots of pre-orders if we're ever going to end up on the New York Times bestseller list. So, go to theriskbook.com and get your pre-orders today. Now, our final story on this week's episode is another one of those stories that you will not hear anywhere else but risk it's an extraordinarily intimate story a very kinky story you know when we were kids we used to say when you had to go to the bathroom do you have to go number one or number two well this story goes number one and number two you might remember there was uh My story, The Whiz Kid, that I shared sometime last year, I mentioned that there's a popular saying in the kink community, don't yuck on my yum. So, you know, that sort of open-minded attitude toward 
well, I guess what I'm trying to say is I was blown away by the courage it took to share something like this, which is what the Risk Podcast is all about. You know, a subject that uh, even some kinksters might find taboo. So in any case, let us now venture onto this journey. <laughs> this is D.K. Anderson with a story we call The First Times. In the end, my dear sweet friend, think that all of my life looking back there have always been what I'd now have to call kinky fantasies as a little boy with my little boyfriends and little girlfriends there was always some kind of rope involved whether we were playing <laughs> jailer and prisoner or whether we were playing hide and seek and there was always some form of like patting butts or getting spanked playfully and I remember being the initiator and also the receiver of this, but it just seemed very playful. But when I was in college, and I was really, I, I was sexually active from an early age. I started having sex with women when I was 15. And I had a college girlfriend and she was ravenously sexual. And I remember she used to love getting fucked. I mean, classic missionary position, pounding which I was good at at 19. Um, she'd reach around and my butt has always been an erogenous zone. I mean, it's like two big clits that live on the lower part of my back. And she reached around and she had these really long sorority nails and she was scratching my ass as I was pounding her. And I mean, I was only 19. So this sensation of her scratching me was driving me to a, a faster orgasm than I wanted to have because I was really interested in her pleasure. And then she hauled off and just both hands started spanking me hard as I was fucking her. And I came in seconds. And we laughed because it was kind of a moment where I said to myself and aloud to her, like, note to self, I guess I'm into spanking. And then I had three other girlfriends in college who spanked me. One who actually, we were making out on her sofa and she's getting really aroused and she's fairly dominant beautiful beautiful tall raven-haired vixen who drove a motorcycle and i was wearing a bandana i had my hair tied back in like a bandana and like college clothing and shorts and a t-shirt and we were making out and i was fingering her and she's playing with me and just ravenously kissing each other which is one of, still one of my favorite things and uh, she just paused for a moment and she tore the bandana off my head. She tied my hands behind my back and she rode me like I was an animal or a carnival ride until she was satisfied. And then she was done with me. I mean, she was my girlfriend, but the message was like, you are a man, you are here for my pleasure. I'm gonna ride you like a dildol. And when I come, I'm done with you. And that was so liberating for me as a man who'd been raised to believe that like, 
you know, it's about my pleasure and like women are objects. And I wasn't raised this way by my parents, but certainly that was the social message that I got. And here was this strong woman, bigger than me, being so sexually dominant. And again, I tried to think of the most unattractive things possible to keep from coming too soon because I wanted to please her, but she just took control. Those two experiences in college made me realize that I was a little kinkster in development. I knew that I liked guys from as early as I could remember. The message was then that, you know, all boys have fantasies about other boys and it's a phase that passes. Well, by you know, I'd say 23, it hadn't passed. And I was like, it's probably not going to pass. <laughs> so I thought, am I gay? Am I, you know, I, I, what was confusing to me was I never faked loving sex with women. It was always real. So I identified as bisexual for a while and now I identify as queer. Um, but I still love the, the bisexuality, but I didn't really play with a man sexually until late, late in my college life. And it was just kind of making out and mutual masturbation. And at that point, I realized, okay, this is, this is a whole other gender that I've never explored being intimate with. And it was great. Cocks are so fun. I mean, vaginas are wonderful too. But, I mean, just I, I, I didn't branch out. <laughs> that was funny. Branch out to cock until I was probably 23. So by 23 or 24, I knew that I was attracted to women, I was attracted to men, and I loved having my ass beat. <laughs> so it made perfectly logical sense to me to go away for a weekend spanking party and enjoyed it incredibly, being this kind of young, submissive boy. Whether I was getting spanked by men or women, I was definitely the submissive. It really gave me an incredible charge to let go of control. Because I was raised to like study hard, be a success, you know, listen to what authority figures said. I mean, I was wound so tightly, always being in what I thought was control. But when I gave that control up to another man or another woman and bent over a sawhorse or a bed or their laps, all of that melted away. I got to just be. I didn't have to perform or get a grade or try to be successful or make a point. I just had to lay there and be kind of a vessel for their aggression. And that was so thrilling sexually and such a fucking relief from the way that I live my life. To this day, when I get to submit, it's like taking a really long nap that involves an orgasm, usually. <laughs> um, so there were these weekend-long BDSM camps that you could go to. It was all spanking. And I parked my little blue Honda and my only friend that I knew there, Bobby, came up and hugged me. And Bobby showed me where the barracks were, where all of us were sleeping in kind of these dormitory-like rooms. And I you know, threw my bags in there and immediately went to go get something to drink because it had been a long drive. And on the walk from where we were sleeping to kind of the main lodge, there was like this little winding path. It's got it so Jungian and 
allegorical now that I look back at it. And walking toward me was this man. I'd say at the time he was 39. Walking toward me is this man in a white t-shirt and the baggiest, dorkiest, khaki cargo pants I have ever seen then or to this day. Like, just bad, just wrong. <laughs> and he had the most beautiful body. He was like long and lean and kind of looked like a combination of like a young, beautiful Steve Buscemi or uh, Matthew Gray Goobler who uh, plays Dr. Spencer Reed on Criminal Minds. I mean, really a stunning man. But from 20 feet away, I could see his eyes. And they were ice blue. They were unnaturally beautiful. And he looked right at me and I walked right toward him. It was like there was a magnet between us. And then we were about maybe a foot away from each other when we stopped and I said, hi. And he said, hi, I'm John. And I said, hi, I'm Drayton. And I said, do I, have I met you? And he's like, you know, that's really funny, Drayden. I was just thinking the same thing. And he smiled at me, and I smiled at him, and something inside of me literally moved. I, I have to believe in love at first sight because I experienced it in that moment. We hadn't met before. We knew no one in common. But yet there was a familiarity in his eyes and in his bearing, and ugh, we did not part each other's company all weekend. And I think he became very unpopular the weekend because he was like a very experienced top that all the bottoms sought to play with. And we just played all weekend together. He was the first person to ever hit me with a flogger or a belt. Later, he was the first guy to ever use a single tail whip on my body. That weekend changed my life and we were so connected. And one of the things that was so powerful about him was his smell. He wore cologne, but it wasn't that. I know what pheromones are, but it wasn't that. It was just something else. There was something about him that I could, I could smell him, and it was very pleasant. But it was, like, carnally masculine. He smelled like maleness. And it went right to my erection. So he was beautiful physically. His eyes were hypnotic. He was a skilled spanker and BDSM master. But it was really his smell that tipped the scale from, okay, he's very beautiful, to I'm completely enamored of him. We stayed in touch for years. We were separated by many, many states. And he would come and visit me and I would come and visit him. We used the term daddy boy, which is common in male, gay, leather and BDSM culture to mean the dominant and the submissive. But we took it a step further and actually made it feel more like a father-son relationship. And implicit in that is the idea that I was even younger than my 23 years or 24 years at this point. I had this fantasy in my mind that I was, you know, I was the boy who lost in a Tom of Finland gangbang. Like, I was the, like, skin-tight Levi's, white t-shirt, black work boots, black belt, little leather vest, spiky little blonde hair, big green eyes. 
I wanted to be used in a room full of men. Like, I was professional by day, I paid all my bills, I was very responsible, I supported some friends and some of my family. But at night, I was a whore tied over a motorcycle getting my ass beaten by a room full of men in black leather and Levi's. And it was so life and sex affirming for me. So John became the ultimate archetypal, like, daddy master sir figure in my life. And he would call me boy and he would force me to wear like white briefs that like a boy would wear and like very tight short cutoffs that a boy would wear and like little tank tops and baseball hats and you know since I was in my early 20s and I like I said I looked probably like I was in my late teens it really worked and it turned him on and it let me be in this place of taking age and playing with it in a way that I could be liberated from actually being a man and being responsible and being smart and being driven and all these things that I was taught to be and that I was good at being, but with him I could be a boy. I could be taken care of, I could be soft, and I could be hurt, consensually, physically. He would tell me on numerous occasions that my holes belonged to him. And what he meant by holes was my mouth and my anus. Um, that they were his to use as he wished. I was a virgin. I'd never had anal sex. I'd never been fucked in the ass. And uh, he used to refer to wanting to fuck me, and he eventually did, as an act of making you mine. He would spank me or whip me with something, and it would leave a mark or a welt. And then he would say, so that's how I mark you on the outside. And this, and he would touch the bulge in his jeans or if his pants were off he would hold his dick which was tumescent this is how I'm going to mark you on the inside this is how I'm going to take ownership of you on the inside like you're going to feel my cock inside of you and it's going to hurt and it's going to be uncomfortable because you've never had this experience before and because I'm big and both of those things were true I am not (laughs) in any way a natural bottom and the process of him making me his, as he said, was a painful one. And I wouldn't have had it any other way because I trusted him. And he offered me a safe word once. And it was the only time in my life that I refused to have a safe word with someone. And it's because I trusted him and loved him explicitly. And incidentally, I never needed to use a safe word. There was never an opportunity in our three years together where I would have said, Ah, I wish I'd had that safe word. So this spanking camp where we met would happen every summer annually. I went back, I'd say about three or four years in a row, and each time our public play would get more extreme. So I'd say it was probably in year two or three that he had me tied up in the lodge room, which was actually sort of the makeshift dungeon. And I was tied to an overhead beam and he was using a flogger on my back, a belt on my butt, and a single tail whip that was about four feet long on my back and my butt too, which this particular object and the way he threw it, I'll never forget. It was braided royal blue and black, so it looked like a gorgeous snake. 
And he could plant what felt like butterfly kisses on my back by flicking this, and in the next stroke he could throw it in such a way that left a welt that lasted for a week. And we had been playing for about two hours in this way, and every 15 minutes he would come across to the front of me, hold my chin in his hands, look at me with those crystal blue eyes, and he would say, how are you feeling, son? How are you doing, boy? Where is your head at? Where is your body at? Are you getting pleasure? Are you sore? Did your foot fall asleep? He would check in consistently to make sure that I was okay. My welfare was of tremendous importance to him, which just made me feel all the safer. So there's that trust building over the course of every time we play together. And I remember this was this was a public scene and people were watching. I mean, he is a physically beautiful man, particularly at 39. And I was just this young, nubile, like plucky little twink. And we'd been playing for about two hours and he untied me and he said, uh, sorry for the break, boy, I really need to pee. And we had talked before about his fantasy. Uh, Drayden, I just want to see you on your knees in front of me with your expectant little mouth open so I can just see the beautiful pink insides of your mouth and your perfect white teeth and just place my cock soft right on your tongue and have you close your mouth and just hold it there while I piss across your tongue and down your throat. And he said, we don't ever have to do this It could stay in the realm of fantasy. But if you want to do it, we'll do it when you're ready. And if you are never ready, I still love you. So flash forward to this camp where we're playing this two-hour public scene. And he says, I have to go pee. Do you? And I say, yes, I do, sir. And we go into this public bathroom that's quite a ways away from the playroom and we both go in to the toilet stall. No words are exchanged. He stands behind me and he unbuttons my jeans. He holds my cock in his hands while I urinate. And when I'm done, he shakes me off, puts me back in my underwear, buttons up my shorts, and I turned around and all I can remember are eyes and that smell. Like just that olfactory intoxication of his smell and his beautiful eyes that were just perfect love and perfect trust and I knelt before him I saw his surprise and his unbridled glee and I opened my mouth just as he had fantasized my doing and he unbuckled his belt he popped the button on the waistband of his Levi's and then popped the other five buttons I can still hear those buttonings on pop in my head. And he lowered his underwear and he took his cock out, which was semi-soft. And he placed it very gently on my tongue and I closed my mouth around it. And we were both very, very still. Then I opened my eyes and I looked up at him. He looked down at me and then he started pissing in my mouth and I remember thinking wow this isn't so bad 
it really just tasted like warm water with a little bit of zing to it. We'd been playing for two hours. When I tell you he needed to pee, I'm telling you he needed to pee. And I stayed on my knees with his cock in my mouth. I'd say he peed five or six minutes straight. And I took every single drop. And I don't think we ever broke eye contact. I was raised in an era where AIDS was not a chronic. We'd gotten past protease inhibitors. We hadn't gotten to PrEP yet. But I was raised that, that men exchanging bodily fluids was not only wrong, it was dangerous. So urine, I knew, was relatively sterile. So it felt safe physically for me to do this in a way that it wouldn't have felt safe swallowing, let's say, his cum. This was the first fluid exchange I ever had with a man, and it was the first fluid exchange I ever had, and it also happened to be the man that I was absolutely in love with, the man who just had owned my heart as well as the rest of my body. And when he was done, he shook his cock off on my tongue, and I heard and tasted the last little dribbles of piss fall on my tongue, and he pulled his cock out, and I immediately felt like something was missing. My erection was so hard, I literally thought I would break the skin of my cock. Um, I touched it briefly and came immediately. He said to me, I'm so proud of you. Not just because you were willing to go there, not just because you took every drop of my piss like a champ, but because you're you. Like, you are just a sexual adventurer and I'm so blessed to have you as my boy because your trust and your love is profound. It was the most intimate act I'd ever had sexually in my life to date. Was drinking this dominant leatherman's piss in a public bathroom. And it sounds so kind of tawdry and illicit when I describe it that way. But the experience was it was magical. It was deeply, deeply intimate and sexy. I think the first time that Sir brought up scat, it was in the context of this spanking weekend. And kinky people are funny because they accept what they do as being okay, but I guess like regular people, stand in judgment of things that are different or things that they're not exposed to. So there's a bunch of gay leather men talking about like things that grossed them out, like water sports or scat, even though they were kinky, you know, they were into this, this, and this, but not water sports or scat. This, this, and this, but oh, not scat. I mean, the way parents toilet train their children it has so much shame involved in it. And there's a weird reward system if you make solid poo. And it's weird. People are weird about shit. I remember John and I laughing about it, ironically, over dinner. And then after dinner, he said, Drayton, I have scat fantasies. I have never done it before. Someday, I want to shit in your mouth. And he said it just like that. 
Now the water sports scene had already happened, maybe a year before. And incidentally, after that water sports scene, he never used a urinal again, ever, in our entire relationship. I was his urinal. And I was grateful and lucky and turned on to be that urinal. I drank his piss whenever, wherever he needed. So we'd already had that long history of fluid exchange behind us. And I remember saying, Drayden, I want to shit in your mouth. I want to be that intimate with you. I want to be that taboo with you. I want you to be that close to me. I want you to take something of mine inside of you. And I have to say, it was the only time anyone had ever talked about scat or shit eating and I didn't have a gross, visceral kind of negative response. But him saying to me, boy, I think about shitting in your mouth, gave me such an erection. I'm sure my eyes dilated, my heart was beating, because the idea of doing something so taboo with him, this sexually robust object of my affection, who was also like loving and trusting and had a lot of integrity and smelled so damn good. I remember getting so aroused at the idea of him squatting over my very vulnerable open mouth and using it for that purpose. So, about two years into our relationship, I'd become quite a little champ at bottoming and taking his dick. Although John was a complete top, he did love having my tongue in, near, around, adjacent to his ass. And he had the most perfectly symmetrical, tight, pink, delicious hole. And he would sometimes squat over my face and hours would go by and I would just lick and tongue and suck on his hole and get his ass lips all swollen and needy and pink. And why was this sexy? I mean, I love rimming men. I love ass. But it was his smell being at the root of his erotic scent. His balls, his perineum, his taint, his anus, all of it was just, it smelled like him and I can't describe it in any other way and that smell was intoxicating to me. So I was often in a position where I had my tongue in his ass and he was just squirming and writhing above me. And I remember this one particular weekend where I was eating his ass for a very long time. I'd say I was down there for about an hour, maybe an hour and a half. Time just would go away when we were having sex. And suddenly he did something that he'd never done before. He passed gas in my mouth. And I was taken aback for a moment, but our agreement was that my mouth was his. So I just inhaled and continued to rim him. And I was so surprised at how arousing the smell of his gas was because it was still his smell. It was just more intense. And I remember inhaling deeply and my erection grew even firmer and harder and I just kept sucking and tonguing and licking away. He swiftly turned around and apologized for farting. And he explained that it was absolutely unintentional. 
And I said, I didn't mind it. And then somewhat sheepishly, I said, would you do it again? He looked at me with this wicked smile in his eyes and I continued to rim him. And I'd say about three or four times during the session of eating his ass, which lasted about an hour and a half, he farted into my mouth about four or five times. Each time was more arousing than the time before because it was more it was just more of him it was more of his smell and as I continued to like use my tongue to probe and lick and suck periodically he would fart and each time I received his smell I just found myself getting more and more and more aroused and finally he said boy hold on for a moment and I said sirs is everything all right and he said Everything is great, Drayton. I just really haven't had a bowel movement in like two days. And it was not uncommon for him to be irregular if he was traveling. I said, oh, okay, um, do we need to stop? And he said, yeah, I really have to go now. Like your tongue has just like relaxed me so much. Like all my internal and external muscles are like a jelly right now. Like it feels so good. Like I'm afraid I'm gonna shit now and I don't want to do that and I said why not and he looked at me and I lay there and I said if you really have to go sir why don't you go here and I pointed to my mouth the look of glee on his face and we're talking like a very masculine 40 year old man just turned into like a quaking 11 year old with giggly pleasure and he's like are you sure and I said I don't know because I didn't but I'm willing to try and he said I have wanted to try this for so long but I didn't want to push you And I said, push me. We had danced before around the topic of his scat fantasies. And once, like water sports, I thought it was gross. It was something, it was a hard limit. It was something I never would think about doing. But it's incredible how the things that you think are hard limits become soft limits or not limits at all when you are with someone that you trust and love so deeply. He took me by the hand into the bathroom that was adjacent to his bedroom and there was a small shower stall in it. And it was like the Keystone Cops or Abbott and Costello for a while because we're two fully grown men and this is a shower stall. He arranges me so my head is laying flat on the floor of the shower stall and he is squatting above me. But in order to do so, he has to hold on to the aluminum posts that frame the glass door. And these things are not meant for holding humans. They're meant for opening and closing. 
So I had to support his ass with my hands and my face, which by the way, I had no problem with. Once we were positioned in, in this kind of ridiculous, like sexual yoga position, I just began to rim him again. I felt his body relax in a way that I'd never felt it relax when I rimmed him before. And I felt the energy shift and I felt something change in him physically. And I kept on rimming him. And at one point I noticed my tongue could go in so much further than I thought it could. And that was because his anus was expanding. And the smell was just overpoweringly erotic and beautiful. It was a combination of that scent that was just exclusively his, and then it was also the smell of his ass. It was just the raw, masculine smell of his ass. And my tongue came up against something firm and pointy, and I thought to myself, oh my God, Drayton, that's his shit. And I ran my tongue across it, and it was firm, and it was hard, it was dry. It smelled a little bit like sulfur, but it mostly smelled like him. It didn't have much of a taste, but I knew what was coming. And I heard him moan, and I watched as his anus expanded further and further. It was kind of magical to witness it. And out came this beautiful, firm, brown, lovely smelling, slightly sulfury lob. It's about four or five inches long maybe. But I kept my mouth open and his shit fell into my mouth and he started urinating all over my cock because that's where his body was positioned. And then another firm turd just dropped out into my mouth and I ejaculated all over. He's peeing, I'm coming, he's shitting, I've got his shit in my mouth. And we're balanced like trapeze artists in this bathroom. <laughs> once I ejaculated and once he urinated, he pissed all over me and I came, um, I didn't really want to eat his shit and we hadn't really talked about what are we going to do with the shit when it's done. So here I am and I, I, I basically just reached in my mouth and they were very, they weren't wet or slimy. They were very firm and well-formed. And I, I took both pieces out and I put them on the shower stall floor and he immediately turned around to look at me to see how I was doing. And he knows I'm doing pretty well because I just ejaculated all over him. And he said, how are you, son? How are you? are you? Are you okay, boy? Like, how did that feel? And I was so in such a state of sexual rapture that I couldn't make a word. All I could do was smile back. I had my mouth open. I couldn't form a word. I was just in this kind of pre-verbal place. Um, but I was very, very happy. And it felt like a communion to me because here was this man that I adored so much and admired his integrity, his strength, his masculinity. He was a mentor and a role model for me in many ways, as well as being my, my sir and my master. And here I, I got to take a part of him inside of me. And I remember this uh, Native American story that I was told growing up because my family's part Native American, that, that uh, mouse is an animal that is very small and observes details and everything. But the poor mouse is often prey to the hawk or the eagle who see everything 
from way above. They don't see details. They see the grand scheme of things. So when a mouse is captured and eaten by an eagle or a hawk, that mouse becomes a part of the hawk and eagle's greatness and is able now to see things from very far above. And I thought, what an interesting way to look at the relationship between a submissive boy and his dominant man, like by taking something so visceral as his excrement into my mouth, I was ingesting a part of his greatness. And the boy was internalizing the man. That part of it was just, it had metaphorical resonance and it was just beautiful. But then also there was just the comical moment of, you know, here are these two beautiful brown turds. And I would never have said 10 minutes before that shit was beautiful. But it was beautiful. I mean, it was sexy, beautiful, and intimate. And we looked at each other and we're like, what do we do with this shit? <laughs> Quite literally. Literally and figuratively, what do we do with this shit? Because I didn't want to eat it. So I just picked them up from the floor next to me and put them in the toilet. And then we went back to his bed and we just snuggled and made out. And I think we had sex probably three or four more times that day. But it felt so right to go there to an area I never thought I would go to doing an action I never thought I would do, ingesting something I never thought I would taste because it felt so right with him. His presence, his smell, his ability to take care of and hold me and my deep desire to please him in any possible way. It was transcendental. for this week's episode folks this is kids of 88 behind me now and we just heard from dk anderson 
Well, we are appearing for the very first time at this brand new venue, Caveat, on the Lower East Side in Manhattan on Clinton Street on January 26th. We are so looking forward to our first show at this new venue. It's January 26th, Joyelle Nicole, Gaster Almonte, Tracy Rowland, and Brad Lawrence will all be there. I'll be bringing a new story to the table. That's just going to be a great night. On February 17th, we are back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. Jackie Cation, Kate Willett, Diana Dinerman, and Paul Gilmartin will all be there. These are going to be two fabulous shows in New York and Los Angeles, so come on out, folks. And don't forget to go to theriskbook.com to pre-order that book and get your friends to pre-order it and pre-order a lot of them for your friends as gifts. Pre-order, pre-order, pre-order at theriskbook.com. You can find everything else you want to learn about us at risk-show.com or about our storytelling education at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. just like that.